Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Before and after pictures of indigenous children reveal Native American clothing replaced by starched Victorian dress. The students were severely punished if they spoke their language, practiced their customs or religion. They were given English names, and the first part of the transition was to cut their hair. Our cultural ways, your hair is like your life's blood. It's, it's, it represents the past, the present, the future. This is why this is so triggering. It's like this overt symbol of the complete erasure of your indigeneity. Atoning for one of America's original sins. Colonial settlers back in 1675 called it the Great Swamp Fight. The Narragansett Indians remember it as the Great Swamp Massacre. This is our home. This is now, this is part of the Narragansetts again, part of our community, part of our history, part of our stories. The scene of that tragedy, now Narragansett land once more. We are where we once were, taken care. We are where we once were. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. Our stories tonight follow the tragic and sometimes hidden histories indigenous people have endured here in Rhode Island and around the country. We begin in the late 1800s with a practice that lasted almost a century. Native American children taken from their families and forced into Indian boarding schools by the federal government. Many were only toddlers. The suffering caused by the often brutal assimilation has resulted in multi-generational trauma for indigenous people such as the Narragansetts of Rhode Island. Stories of the federal Indian boarding schools are just some that will now have the place and the space to be told at a new Tomaquag Museum being built in Kingston. real goal was to take the land. Um, if they couldn't exterminate us through genocide and warfare, they were going to exterminate us through forced assimilation. Forced assimilation was part of a land grab tactic for early settlers, and it was an attempt by the U.S. government to eradicate the identity of Native Americans. In the late 1800s, little children were taken far away from home to Indian boarding schools and were routinely abused. Many died of neglect and disease. The practice ran for decades. Loren Spears, known in Narragansett language as Makasuni Pashao, meaning moccasin flower or lady slipper, is director of the Tomaquag Indian Memorial Museum, as well as a writer and educator. That education on the surface seems like a good thing, but in the case of the boarding schools, the industrial schools, the religious boarding schools that came before the federal system, these were detrimental to indigenous children, families, and communities, and that literally they were acts of violence against the indigenous peoples and their nations. And the ultimate goal was to take the land, but also to strip us of our identity, our culture, our communities, our nations. It has been branded the hidden history, one that is being acknowledged in exhibits such as this held recently at the University of Rhode Island. 
a poignant part of the display, these child-sized handcuffs. When you saw these handcuffs for the first time, what went through you? You know, it was visceral, tiny children with these tiny handcuffs. And I always think of it like this. I have a three-year-old grandson, um, and the idea of him being ripped from his family and community and being handcuffed in that way just, like, is so extraordinarily painful. Spears says she first heard about Indian boarding schools from her family. I learned it first through our stories, through our oral histories, through the understanding that these structures were structures of slavery. You can pretty it up with words like indentured servitude, but when people are taken as young children and never return to your community until they're 30 or more, that's slavery. They kept them even during the long summer months um, by putting them with white families to act as domestic help or to do laboring jobs. And that was a way that the boarding schools actually raised money to keep these kids here. So they've literally stolen you, and now they're forcing you to work in order to keep stealing you and keeping you there. Spears says many Indian parents were threatened if they didn't relinquish their children or tried to hide them. Some parents who resisted were imprisoned. Think about what it's like when you're a parent and your child's been stolen from you and you were not able to protect them. What does that do to your heart and to your psyche? And Spears says once their children were taken off the reservation, the cultural cleansing began. These before and after pictures of indigenous children reveal the process. Native American clothing was replaced by starched Victorian dress. The students were severely punished if they spoke their language, practiced their customs or religion. They were given English names. But the first part of the transition was to cut their hair. Our cultural ways, your hair is like your life's blood. It's, it's, it represents the past, the present, the future. This is why this is so triggering. It's like this overt symbol of the complete erasure of your indigeneity. This erase and replace model was first started in 1879 by Richard Pratt, a former military officer. Among the thousands of children who were held at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, old records indicate there were Narragansetts, as well as members of other southern New England tribes, Wampanoags, Poconocets, and Pequots. One of my uncles, he's not Narragansett, he's um, from another tribal nation, but he was literally taken, he and his siblings, from their family and community. And he has not only the emotional scars, but the physical scars to show for it. Spears says those scars have marred the lives of Native Americans for generations. The violence of that theft of your, your childhood, the theft of your cultural knowledge, the theft of your language and your relationships with your family and community, and how that when you think of these lateral traumas today of alcoholism and drug abuse and poverty, that these are all connected. The interconnections of the story in this exhibition are too large to display in the tiny Tomaquag Museum. It has been in existence for 60 years and is currently housed in what was once a country church deep in Exeter. The idea is to uh, re-indigenize the landscape in, in different kinds of ways. Now in Kingston, a new extensive museum complex will be built on 18 acres of land 
owned by URI. Spears points out it is a place that has always been homeland to Narragansetts. All of this land that we now know as Rhode Island is Narragansett land. We wanted it to still feel rural. We wanted it to be near water, like the Chapuxet River and the Whitehorn Brook. The campus will have four buildings, the main museum building, the Education Center, the Indigenous Empowerment Center, and the Archive Collections Research Center, which we'll call the Belongings Research Center. Spears also envisions gardens, hiking trails, and a replica village where everyone is welcome to come learn. She says education is the first step towards reconciliation. You know, if we want to create equity um, and undo some of the injustice that has taken place, we have to also create equity um, through education. We have to create equity through um, job training and development. We have to create equity in acknowledging and healing from the pains of the past. Yet the lessons of the past have not always helped heal the wounds inflicted upon Native Americans. Spears says the Narragansett Nation was detribalized in the 1800s and not recognized until 1979. It was a slight she felt even as a little girl. Can you tell me what it was like for you to be a Narragansett in Rhode Island? There was two things happening. When I was with my family and my community, there's such a pride and honor and respect to our culture and our community. And then there was the outside community that didn't seem to understand. So when I was in my fifth grade classroom, I had a history textbook that said I didn't exist right there in the textbook. So how, how do you, as a fifth grader, understand that? How do you um, process that information? How do you stand up for yourself in the classroom? It's very difficult. My daughter is a college student now, and her first Native Studies course, the professor had them making up fictional tribes. So there's still such a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge and, you know, perpetuation of stereotypes and generalizations and just misinformation. Even today? Even today in the 21st century. And teachers were taught it wrong when they were in school and they're regurgitating that misinformation and passing it forward to new generations. And most of the time, only talking about it in the mythological sense of the quote-unquote first Thanksgiving as their way of, of bringing up indigeneity in their classrooms. Spears hopes the new Tomaquag Museum programs will help educate the educators. It gives us the opportunity to work with professors and really um, build their their knowledge around local indigenous history and culture and the intersectionality of that. It also gives us an opportunity to work with students so that we can hopefully go forward and this next generation isn't as misinformed as the last several generations have been. Spears believes despite the loss of family and freedom during the time of Indian boarding schools, some Native Americans still flourished by using their education and the skills they learned there. For example, Former female sachem of the Narragansetts, Princess Redwing, who was sent to a Quaker school. She was an educator and an advocate um, her whole life, um, you know, and a culture bearer and passing forth traditional knowledge. So she was able to, as many people that were, if you will, subjugated under the umbrella of boarding schools, in one way was able to then take that knowledge and utilize that to support indigenous initiatives, including, you know, speaking on behalf of indigenous rights at the United Nations. Spears says the new Tomaquag Museum will better preserve the rich history and culture of Narragansetts, including a fully fluent language. 
It is being revived today in greetings, storytelling, and prayer. It translates in part. Today, Creator, we come to you with a quiet heart and we give thanks for all our beloved relations. We give thanks for those that persevered and survived so that we could be here today. Long before Indian boarding schools took root in America, Rhode Island was the scene of a well-documented injustice to indigenous Americans. 350 years ago, colonial settlers carried out a brutal raid on a Narragansett Indian village filled with women and children. It came to be known as the Great Swamp Massacre. In a story we first brought you in December, contributing reporter David Wright was there as the Rhode Island Historical Society sought to make amends for the atrocity. It's a ceremony you'll only see here on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. In the Great Swamp near South Kingstown, Rhode Island, a ceremony nearly 350 years in the making. You're witnessing a part of history on a positive note. John Brown, chief medicine man for the Narragansett Indians, first purifies the circle formed by this small gathering of people. Then he and the tribal chief kindle a flame. To the Narragansett, the Great Swamp is sacred ground because of what happened here in 1675. A lot of Indians lost their lives here because it's Narragansett, it's a whole bunch of them. This ceremony marked an effort to make amends. The Rhode Island Historical Society was at long last transferring the land back to the tribe. C. Morgan Greff is the Historical Society's executive director. This is truly one of the most profound and humbling moments of my life. And I'm so honored to stand with all of you today, to see all of you here in the sacred space, and to say in every way possible that I am so proud to stand here on Narragansett land. I walked down this road for at least, in memory, at least 69 of my 74 years. And this is the first time I've been down here with a heart as exuberant as it is beating. I can't stop it. Every American knows the story of the first Thanksgiving, how the pilgrims landed in Plymouth in 1620, and the following autumn shared a harvest feast with the Native Americans who helped them survive that first year. Less well-known is the story of the Great Swamp Massacre of 1675, one of America's original sins. I mean, we're big on mythology in this country, aren't we? And, and we romanticize the past. But there are some bloody truths there that are important to confront. Yeah, oh, very much so. We, I think that we can't fully appreciate the magnitude of the good things without properly understanding the magnitude of the bad. The bad, in this case, happened during what American history books record as King Philip's War. This is a, a very tense time as more English keep coming. And King Philip's War becomes this point of uh, no return in terms of relations. Ultimately, King Philip's War was a conflict over land. I've read that King Philip's War 
is per capita the bloodiest war in American history. Is that true? It seems to be, yes. It's called King Philip's War. King Philip was a Native American. Yes. That was his English name. Yes. He was the son of Massasoit? Of Massasoit Osamaquin. So he is the son of the tribal leader who attended the first Thanksgiving. Yes. One generation. One out. generation. The Mayflower had about 130 people on board, including passengers and crew. Five decades later, the number of colonial settlers in New England had grown to more than 50,000, spread out over Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and what's now Maine. Only one problem with that, according to Chief Medicine Man John Brown. It sounds good and noble to talk about a city on a hill, but when you're building it on somebody else's land, that's a problem. Yes. They made the very people that lived there look like the enemy and look like the ones that were in the wrong for defending their home. As the settlements grew, so did the conflict between colonists and natives. Both sides committed atrocities. Who were the aggressors here? It was the United Colonial Forces. So this is the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Plymouth Colony. Connecticut. Connecticut and New, New Haven. Haven. At the start of King Philip's War, the colony of Rhode Island was neutral. So were the Narragansett Indians. But Rhode Island allowed colonial troops from Massachusetts and Connecticut to march through. And the Narragansett took in refugees from neighboring tribes involved in the fight. As many as 3,000 people, including women, children, and elderly, were holed up for the winter in a Narragansett fort in the Great Swamp. This was a, a village filled with non-combatants. But they were attacked anyway. They were. On December 19, 1675, about a thousand colonial troops attacked the fortified Narragansett village in the Great Swamp, burning it down and destroying their winter supplies. In retaliation for the Swamp Massacre, the Native American warriors went on the offensive, setting fire to colonial towns and villages, including Providence, which then was just a small collection of houses around what today is Roger Williams Park. It was the greatest calamity in colonial American history. But in the end, the colonists prevailed. King Philip, facing likely defeat, retreated to his ancestral homeland in Mount Hope, where the colonists cornered and killed him. Scholars of indigenous history have looked at this war as pivotal in terms of the relationships between indigenous populations and uh, colonial governments and then the American federal government. In the aftermath of the war, the colonists sent thousands of Native Americans into forced labor in places like Barbados and Jamaica. Others became indentured servants here in Rhode Island. The Narragansett, once the largest New England tribe, were all but wiped out of existence. They came here to erase the people from this land. They came here to colonize, and when you colonize a place, that means you remove the in indigenous species, whatever they may be, and you supplant that with your own species. The family who owned this land for generations recognized its significance and wanted to see it preserved. So a century ago, they gave it to the Rhode Island Historical Society. In 1906, when we were given this land, there was not a Narragansett Indian tribe as an entity to give it to. So when did that change? So that changed in the 1980s because the tribe, after a very long legal battle, was able to gain tribal recognition. The complicated legal process of giving back the land took years. Writing a very old wrong. 
Yes, I mean, we are the Rhode Island Historical Society. We're in the business of protecting and preserving and sharing our past, but nothing in our mission or vision says we need to own it all. A long time coming. Well, yes, yeah. It is now incumbent upon the Narragansett Indian people to show a modicum of character and capability. And I have no doubt that we won't do that. Because there's one thing about an Narragansett, if we give you our word, we give it to you. This ceremony marked the final handover. Now the scene of that massacre is Narragansett land once again. Many, many, many hundreds of beings still walk here. And they too, if you allow them the moment, will either touch upon you with a breeze or with a strange feeling or maybe a goosebump or maybe just a, a smile from in here. This means that, I can't even describe what it means. We are where we once were, taken care. We are where we once were. Our thanks to David Wright for that report. Next, in our continuing series, Kids Want to Know, students from West Warwick High School ask Juliette Hooker, professor of political science at Brown University, why indigenous American history is often excluded from textbooks. Hi, my name is Ethan Britson. Why do you think the teachings of North American history begin with the arrival of the Europeans rather than the indigenous Americans and how they lived in early North America? This is a really important question. Thank you for asking it. I think one of the reasons that we don't begin by telling the history of indigenous peoples and instead focus on what happens after European arrival is that it would change the way we have to study and tell the history of the United States' founding and its subsequent history, right? If we focus on the history of indigenous peoples, on the fact that there were these thriving societies before European arrival that were then decimated and were dispossessed of their land to make room for settlers, we would have to retell our national myths in different ways. So instead of Thanksgiving being this moment of friendly encounter when the Wampanoag saved the pilgrims, we would have to remember it as many indigenous people do as um, a national day of mourning that led to dispossession, loss of language, loss of land, um, deaths, enslavement, etc., etc. Right? And so this would be a much more complicated story. And this is a problem that we see in curricula across the United States. A report by the National Congress of American Indians in 2019 found that 87% of states don't include the teaching of Native American history after 1900 in their state standards. And 20-something odd states don't include any Native American history in their curricula. Hi, I'm Morgan Judd. What steps can be taken to help Indigenous American history be represented in the curriculum around the United States? This is an excellent question. I think there are two important things that can be done. One, for example, is producing curriculum, curricula that 
teachers can use to integrate indigenous history into their lesson plans. And these have been produced by, for example, the Smithsonian and other institutions. States can also require that indigenous history be taught in as part of their state standards. And this is being done in places like Washington, which requires not only that indigenous history be taught, but that it be done with the involvement of federally recognized indigenous communities. And this is important because if we're telling this history, we want this history to be told from the perspective of indigenous peoples themselves. And then finally, this brings me to something else that we can do, which is to actually bring indigenous people into the classroom, right? In a place like Rhode Island, you could bring in somebody from the Narragansett tribe to come in and talk about their history, to talk about their culture, and to talk about how they continue to live and, and, and find ways to, to thrive in the midst of the histories of dispossession, um, genocide, etc., that they have faced. So I think there's a number of things that can be done to bring um, indigenous history into the teaching of U.S. history and making it a central part of that curriculum. Our thanks to Professor Hooker and the students from West Warwick High School. On Monday, February 7th, Rhode Island PBS will present a special called Sparked, the nonprofit innovation lab. It follows six innovators as they present their ideas to take on social issues, including homelessness and mental health, and develop programs to bring hope and change to Rhode Island communities. Now more than ever, we look to entrepreneurial trailblazers to tackle social issues in our community. Six innovators will present their ideas to a panel of judges for a chance to win a share of $90,000 in seed funding. Funding that could help transform these bold ideas into a reality. This is Sparked. Sparked will air right here on Rhode Island PBS on February 7th at 9 p.m. And that's our broadcast for this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly.